Hello all and warm welcomes to the latest from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Coming to you from a pleasant springtime North Wales and the spare room of Paul, the host and True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. It's fantastic having you guys here as always, new friends and older welcome alike, and I thank you all very much for joining me. I hope that you're all well as this episode finds you. Now we're getting right down to the wire with the series now. There are only a couple of episodes left before I do head off and have a couple of weeks break. I'll of course be doing stuff in the interim period because I never really completely take the foot off. There are always things to crack on with with the show, but that's how I like it actually. I love that. So I'll be looking forward to getting back to starting the show's fourth series. I just know when a bit of a rest is due is all. I may work on some collaborations with other shows during the break. I may even chuck out a bit of bonus content. You never know. But there'll certainly be a bonus Patreon episode in this time as well. Big thanks and welcome to my returning and Patreon supporters of the show. That's Liesl B and Penelope Friday. I hope that you guys have enjoyed the 15 bonus Patreon episodes that are available to date. With the next one coming on the 1st of May as a new one is always released on the 1st of each month. If you're interested too, and this is something that you fancy hearing yourselves, then it's dead simple to do. You just head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site and follow the steps there. Or as ever, the link to support the show can be found with the show notes this week. It's very reasonable to do. Access to all episodes of the show can be yours for less than the price of a pint. Bargainion or what that, isn't it? I'm pleased this week to also feature the promo for a new UK true crime podcast called Evil Minds. Now it's only a couple of episodes in, but I've been impressed with the choice of cases on the show so far, and through conversations with the host Stephen, I found him to be a most pleasant and very approachable host, who I shall pass your good selves over to so he can tell you a bit more about Evil Minds. Hi, this is Steve from Evil Minds a brand new weekly podcast dedicated to true crime. On the podcast we will cover some of the most horrendous true crimes that have been committed in the UK and elsewhere. Some of the crimes you hear about will be known to you, others won't. We'll cover the lesser known ones as well as some of the more infamous ones. Some of them still remain unsolved. So please join me every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. Finally, a big thanks to the true crime enthusiast himself, Paul, for giving me this opportunity to have my promo played on his show. Cheers for that then, Steve. Evil Minds there. Sound good or what? I see many good things coming from the show, and as Steve says, you can catch Evil Minds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much the usual places where you download or stream your podcasts from, with a nice link to it being with my show notes as ever this week. It can also be found through social media under the same title, so why not look him up and say hi, and look out for new episodes coming of Evil Minds. Also in the show notes this week is an article, this is a bit of a shameless self-plug really, but I had the pleasure recently of doing a guest article for long-time show friend and supporter Adam, who's the host of the UK True Crime podcast, I don't think he needs very much introduction, about how and why I do my own show, and if you'd be interested in having a read of that for yourselves, then a link to that can be found there in the show notes, or it can be found by heading over to the blog section of uktruecrime.com. This week then, on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the episode once again starts with an explanation. Now I wrote up an episode that originally featured two cases in one episode, both stemming back for more than 50 years ago, and there were two cases that I'd covered previously a couple of years back on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog. Yeah, I'm having a bit of a raid of the blog archives this week. But I decided to split the episode down once again into two manageable parts, as I did last time with the Lady in the Lake episode, The Corpse in Coniston Water, as when I'd finished writing it, it was reading longer than the Incredible Hulk CV, for God's sake. And as with the previous episodes as well, I decided that I shall release both episodes a day or two apart. The cases take place seven years and roughly 120 miles away in distance, and although both cases remain officially unsolved, neither is connected in any way. It's all the more reason why I'm able to split them down somewhat. 
What they do have in common though is the strangeness and savagery of each crime and the shattered families of each victim who are left to try and pick up the pieces of their lives afterwards. One of the cases certainly remains unsolved anyway, but the other, well, the identity of the killer has for many years been very strongly suspected, though this will be explained as the episode progresses, and it's this case that we shall focus upon in this episode. This week's episodes both contain descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is as ever advised. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at the first of these cases in an episode that I've entitled When a Killer Comes Knocking. So our tale featured in this episode takes place in the UK city of Liverpool, which surely needs no introduction. If you've never heard of the Beatles, and then I don't even know, have you been under a rock or a bucket or something? And it takes place in the district of Naughty Ash, which is on the eastern fringes of the city. Naughty Ash is noted as the birthplace of the late celebrated British comedian and all-round entertainer Sir Ken Dodd who, if you don't know who Ken Dodd was, breaking it down, he was a beloved British entertainer who got himself a knighthood for doing this. He was always armed with a feather duster, he had crazy hair, massive teeth, he wasn't too fond of paying the taxman, and he lent his name to the tongue twister, Ken Dodd's Dad's Dog's Dead, which I'd bet a month's wages that you'll all have a couple of goes at saying now. And what a way for me to sum up a long and varied career of a showbiz legend in a couple of lines. Absolute shame on me. It was here in Naughty Ash that on a foggy afternoon in December 1961, the district and indeed the entire city was left reeling and horrified by the savage killing in her own home of mother of two Maureen Dutton, right in front of her own children. To this day it's an officially unsolved murder that's led to many wildly varying theories as to the motive and the person responsible, bogus medical professionals, strange youths, mysterious babbling women and even a ritual sacrificial angle all became part of the investigation. Number 14 Thingwall Road, very near to the site of Liverpool's Broad Green Hospital, was home in 1961 to the Dutton family which consisted of 33-year-old Brian, who was a research chemist who worked at the ICI establishment in the nearby town of Widnes, and his 27-year-old wife Maureen, who was a housewife and mother. Married for three and a half years, the Dutton family already had a two-year-old son, David, and in November 1961, the family had become four when Maureen gave birth to the couple's second child, a boy who was later christened Andrew. On Wednesday the 20th of December 1961 then, the whole family were excited about little Andrew's first Christmas and they were looking forward to the festive holidays. Brian as usual left for work that morning just after 8am after taking Maureen a cup of tea up to her as she was still in bed and that day Maureen had made plans to take David to visit the Christmas nativity scene at the nearby Childwall Parish Church. The area of Naughty Ash had been blanketed in heavy freezing fog for some days leading up to this, in the proper winters that they had back then, I'm sure that you've heard people say more than once. So not really wanting to take baby Andrew out with her and David, Maureen had arranged for her mother-in-law, Elsie Dutton, to come and babysit. Elsie had already visited the family that morning at 11am and had agreed that she would return to look after Andrew that afternoon. But by 1.30pm, the fog had worsened so much that Elsie was unable to get back to the house from her house in nearby Broad Green Road and she phoned Maureen to tell her that she wasn't available. This short telephone conversation that afternoon was the last time that Maureen was confirmed to be alive. Brian returned home from work at 6.10pm that evening, a bit later than usual due to the fog and he was immediately struck by the house being unusually in darkness. Entering the house, he noticed that nothing seemed to be out of place, but he did see that the remains of the family's unfinished lunch were still on the dining table in the front room. He couldn't hear any sounds throughout the house, and moving to the family's sitting room at the rear, he discovered his wife Maureen laying dead on the floor, having been brutally stabbed at least 14 times it was determined later. 
His son David sat nearby on a chair in a daze, crying, and baby Andrew lay in his crib, but neither child had been physically harmed. It was believed, though, that David had witnessed his mother being brutally murdered. Immediately checking his children's welfare, the shaken and dazed Brian then raised the alarm to neighbours who contacted police and a doctor. Chief Superintendent James Morris of Liverpool CID led the subsequent murder hunt from the city's Old Swan police station, but right away the inquiry team was struck with a lack of solid leads. There were no apparent signs of forced entry to the house, indeed it appeared as though Maureen had willingly opened the door to a killer who had left through and locked one of the doors. Nothing appeared to have been stolen from the house, there were no signs of a struggle or ransacking, no obvious forensic evidence from the killer was found at the scene, and Maureen had not been sexually assaulted or her clothing interfered with in any way. The obvious suspect, Brian of course, could account for his movement satisfactorily that day and he was ruled out of the inquiry. The resulting investigation was massive, with thousands of people in the area being spoken to and some 20,000 statements having been taken within a month of the murder. Yet these revealed very little. No one had been seen entering or leaving the Dutton house at any time that afternoon. No sounds of screams or a struggle coming from there were heard, and an extensive look into the background and personal lives of both Maureen and Brian Dutton revealed nothing that would have presented itself as grounds for a motive for murder. There were no affairs or illegal activities they were involved in, that kind of thing. A sheath knife casing that didn't belong to the Dutton household was found at the scene though, and teams of police search specialists had scoured the entire area in depth, yet in vain, in an attempt to find a discarded murder weapon, which was thought to have been a long-bladed knife which would have fitted this sheath but one was never found. Local criminals and sex offenders had been looked at and ruled out one by one, vehicles in the area had been checked and eliminated, and even toddler David was for weeks after the murder constantly monitored by a policewoman in case any of his childish babble could reveal any clues as to what he'd witnessed on the afternoon of his mother's murder. The child was, however, incoherent and he was never able to give police any leads. The Naughty Ash murder, as it was christened in the press, became front page news and this publicity, plus the police inquiries, led to several different theories about the murder being presented and reports of people that police wished to speak to to eliminate from their inquiries. Three in particular drew their attention. Firstly, there were reports of a man operating in the area who was going round knocking on doors around Naughty Ash and the neighbouring districts of Highton and Halewood, pretending to be a doctor, visiting women at home who'd recently given birth and requesting them to undress so he could examine them. The man had been revealed as a fraudster when one concerned husband who contacted the local health service to ascertain the man's identity was told that no doctor of that name worked there. Now as Maureen herself was a new mother, this was a real promising line of inquiry and the hunt was on for the bogus doctor, who it appeared was gleaning information from the birth announcements in the classified ads of the local newspapers and heading around to have a perv or touch up new mothers by posing as a medical official. He was caught and identified in 1962 as being a male nurse who lived on Upper Parliament Street in Liverpool when he was arrested for theft of drugs and equipment from numerous Liverpool hospitals. Now this man was identified as matching the description of the bogus doctor and when he was questioned he soon admitted to being the culprit but he denied being a killer and was ultimately ruled out and eliminated as a suspect in Maureen's murder. Another lead that ultimately led nowhere was the sighting of a young blonde woman who was seen babbling excitedly and highly upset on the number 10D bus very close to the murder scene in nearby East Prescott Road on the afternoon of the murder. She'd appeared to be breathless from running and in a heavy Irish accent was babbling incoherently about how she needed to get out of the city immediately, how she'd done something terrible and how she was going to head down to London to catch a plane. When the woman was last seen exiting the bus at Liverpool Lime Street Terminus, she kept repeating, oh my God, over and over, 
before disappearing into the crowds. This woman was never traced through extensive police inquiries and despite widespread public appeal, she never came forward voluntarily. But by far the strongest lead police had were the reports of a good-looking, dark-haired youth wearing a black leather jacket who'd been seen several times on and in the vicinity of Thingwall Road on the day of the murder. He was spotted running very fast down Thingwall Road at about 3.20pm that afternoon, and soon after this, at 3.30pm, what was very likely the same man was spotted being violently sick near to the steps of nearby Corte Methodist Church. He drew extra attention to himself when he was doing this, as if you see someone yakking doesn't kind of draw your attention to him straight away. And this guy made himself more memorable because while he was vomiting, he kept his hands firmly wedged within his pockets as he was doing so. Now I'm not an expert at puking, but I would imagine that you'd naturally place your hands, both hands, on your knees, wouldn't you, while you were doing this, don't you think? Why keep your hands in your pockets? A neighbour of the Duttons also reported that on the afternoon Maureen was murdered, at 1.50pm she'd answered a knock at her door and had been confronted by a man who police also likely considered was the same guy. The young, dark-jacketed man had what the neighbour described as a menacing look upon his face and he didn't say a word to her, he just stood there in front of her, clapping his hands together slowly. Frightened by this oddball, the woman had quickly slammed and locked the door, and when she plucked up the courage to look through the window a few moments later, the man was gone. The witnesses all helped police produce an identikit picture of the guy, and this was published in the local press to a good initial response. It was reportedly the first time that a full-colour identikit picture of a murder suspect had been published in the UK press, reportedly. Check the show's Instagram page to see this identikit picture. Within 24 hours of the picture being published in the Liverpool Echo, police had received over 60 suggestions as to the identity of the man that were all checked out, but each name suggested was eventually eliminated, and this man has never been positively identified. In an inquiry already filled with strangeness, one of the strangest lines to come out of the investigation was the consideration that detectives gave to the possibility that Maureen Dutton was a sacrificial victim murdered by a member of a cult who worshipped a Polynesian god known as Tiki. This was an angle that was seriously looked at. Yeah, seriously, I'm not messing. As it was believed that the cult had some followers in the Liverpool area. Detectives acting under the orders of the Deputy Chief Constable of Liverpool himself, Herbert Balmer, examined the activities and customs of this cult thoroughly. They learned as much as they could about Tiki. They learned about Polynesian customs and music, which I've never heard and I can't really imagine finding its, it finding its way onto my music shelf either, to be honest with you. And police found that its members, several of which were indeed found in Liverpool, supposedly believed in making sacrifices to appease Tiki during the winter solstice, which covered the time period in which Maureen was murdered. These cult members were also known to have a reverse swastika symbol tattooed on their upper left arms, having adapted this as a cult symbol to please some fictional deity. Although ultimately this sacrificial nonsense angle was to be ruled out as a motive for Maureen's murder, it did lead to a strange coincidence coming to light. The nurse who was arrested for posing as the bogus doctor that I mentioned before, the one who was ruled out of the inquiry, was found to have this tiki cult symbol tattooed on his upper left arm. He was actually a member of this cult too. By the time nonsense like this was being looked at, it showed just how much police were scraping the barrel for leads in the case. The murder of Maureen Dutton is a crime that's raised much speculation and provided more questions than answers over the years. There's very little that can be ascertained from the known facts, leaving only room for hypothesis. So what can we confidently say? Well, it's known that there's a window of just over four and a half hours, sometime in which Maureen was murdered after that final telephone conversation with Elsie at 1.30pm and before Brian returning home at 6.10pm. 
No screams or sounds of a struggle were heard by neighbours, so the time Maureen was killed at in this window can only remain a mystery. The absence of anything being heard means that it's likely that her attack was very sudden and most likely Maureen's killer simply knocked on the door. Either the killer then conned his or her way in or produced a knife when Maureen answered the door and forced her backwards into the house where she was quickly and savagely stabbed to death. David was of course too young to be any help to his mother and was instead forced to be a witness. I mean, you can't even hardly begin to imagine the trauma that that poor boy suffered as a result of what he witnessed that day. Fancy seeing that, that's horror indeed, that is awful. But the same, envisaging what the motive for Maureen's murder could have been is just as difficult as working out when it happened because there are several possible theories. Now again, as when I ever do unsolved cases on the show, these are just speculations and it's no way me stating, oh, this is definitely what's happened here. So was this a personal attack and was Maureen deliberately targeted? It's possible, but by all accounts, the Dutton family was a happy and stable one with nothing to suggest that either Maureen or Brian was involved in an affair or had any enemies. I don't mean to suggest that this wasn't the case, however. There does, of course, there remains the possibility that a secret lover of Maureen's committed the crime, or perhaps even someone with an infatuation with her killed her when she spurned his advances, or a female infatuated with Brian who viewed Maureen as a love rival. Robbery would seem unlikely as a motive, as nothing was reported stolen, nor any signs of ransacking to the house apparent. And also, would a robber choose at random a house in the middle of a suburban street in the daytime, even disregarding the cover of fog that there was that day? This still seems to be too high risk to me. And there would surely have been more lucrative targets, such as a shop or a pub. A sexual motive would also seem unlikely for similar reasons. A sex attacker, I thought, would more likely attack outdoors, where there was less chance of detection and easier escape. There were no reported signs of Maureen's clothing having been interfered with, or evidence of any sexual assault or attempted one. But it is, of course, possible that a killer did have this in mind, but had killed her and fled in a panic when she resisted. There also exists the possibility that Maureen was targeted at random by someone with a mental illness, and there are aspects that do make you consider the possibility that a killer was. Firstly, would a person brutally butcher a young mother or two in front of her own children if he or she is of sound mind? Secondly, about a hundred yards from the murder scene, at the time the former St Edward's Orphanage was a home for the mentally ill Thingwall Hall. It is possible that a resident from the home had somehow managed to procure a weapon and had slipped out, committed the crime and returned a short time later. These are all angles that will of course have been looked at by police at the time and barring a massive failing on behalf of the investigating team all would have been ultimately ruled out. But as one by one all possible leads were followed up and ruled out the investigation of course wound down and Maureen's killer has never been brought to justice for a murder to this day. Due to the amount of time that's passed since there is a very real possibility that the killer may now be dead themselves and if they are still alive, he or she would likely be in the 70s or 80s now, and maybe in a hospital or a nursing home. It is likely that they will have committed other crimes before and after the murder, and also more than likely that they'd been already known to local health professionals or police. This person will surely have been in the system somewhere, because I don't for the life of me believe that this was a first offence but he or she slipped through the cracks and was missed at the time of the investigation, perhaps never to be caught again. Maureen's husband and family were left to grieve her loss, and her children David and Andrew were both forced to grow up without knowing very much about who their mother was, all thoughts of her dominated by the horrific fate that she suffered. When I first wrote the blog post about this case back in 2017, I was contacted some time later by a former schoolmate of David's who'd read the post and who sent me a very informative email telling me that David had moved on from his trauma and ultimately grew up to become a solicitor and even a mastermind contestant at some point. He was less sure what had become of Andrew, but I did get the impression from the mail that the two boys grew up separately and David was raised by his grandmother 
whilst Andrew was by his father. Perhaps, and it's a bit of a sad thought this really, isn't it, that the repercussions from Maureen's murder split the family somewhat, the trauma buried to an extent, although not forgotten. I mean, how could you ever really? And Maureen's murder has of course never been officially forgotten. The police file has never been closed as the crime has been reappealed several times over the years and police have regularly reviewed the very cold ashes of the case looking for new information that may lead them to bringing Maureen's killer to justice. As recently as 2018, the crime was again being featured in the Liverpool Echo newspaper, and during research of the case, I found a site that suggested an amateur crime writer was planning and researching a book about the case, although as of yet, it hasn't surfaced and the status of this book remains unknown. The case does feature in a number of true crime texts and articles that are worthy of a read, and links to which will be within the show notes this week. But that's what they remain, words about an officially unsolved murder. Until the day comes that Maureen's killer does come to light, if of course her killer does come to light, then some residents of the tight-knit community of Knotty Ash will undoubtedly still remember with a chill the day that death came out of the fog and took one of their own. Now I've stressed officially about the status of the case this far throughout the episode because what if I suggested to you that Maureen's killer struck again less than a year later and was caught? Nope, we are not done with the episode just yet. On the night of the 9th of December 1962, almost a year later and just two miles away from the Dutton home, Ronald and Maureen Hobbs decided to have a late drink out at the nearby Walton Village Club Hall. This was a common enough pastime for the couple, and whereas up until a few months previously, the couple's four children had always been left in the care of a family friend, Albert Rogers, who would come and babysit for them whilst they did this. The past few occasions that they'd been out though, that care had been passed onto the eldest Hobbs child, 12-year-old Leslie, who although she was young in years herself, I mean, would you leave a 12-year-old on their own now? Was considered responsible enough, and indeed, was happy enough sat at home listening to her pop records and enjoying the chance to stay up late while her folks were out. Each time they went out, Maureen would make sure that the younger Hobbs children, 9-year-old John, 7-year-old Janet and 5-year-old Patricia, were settled and asleep before the couple left for the evening. The back door to the semi-detached house, number 191 Childwall Valley Road in Liverpool's Childwall district, would be bolted at the top and bottom and then locked. The telephone number of the Walton Village Club Hall was written in the telephone book in case of emergency and the front door to the property was self-locking and was shut securely behind Maureen and Ronald when they left. That afternoon had been a busy one for the family as Maureen had remained at home making the family Sunday dinner whilst Ronald had taken the four children to the local swimming baths. Once this was all done and cleared away, then all four kids were scrubbed, the shoes polished and the clothes pressed for school and it was bedtime for the younger ones. It was beer o'clock and Maureen and Ron fancied a couple of pints. Leaving Leslie in charge, at about 9.30pm that December Sunday evening, the couple then went out for a sociable drink. They were to be back home less than two hours later as per usual, but life was never to be the same for the Hobbs family when they did so. At 11.25pm, using their key to open the locked front door, Maureen and Ron found the hall light to be still on, and they could hear the sounds of music coming from the radio in the rear sitting room. Opening the door, they found the horrific sight of their firstborn child lying on her back on the floor of the blood-spattered room, her hands tied behind her back with a piece of rag. Another two pieces were tied together and fastened loosely around her neck, and next to her lay a blood-stained and bent fireplace poker and ashtray stand. As Ronald checked his daughter for any signs of life, Maureen raced upstairs to check on the other three children, who were all still sound asleep in their beds. Finding Leslie was sadly beyond any help, and by now covered in his daughter's blood, a shaken and stunned Ronald Hobbs contacted police. Within 12 minutes, Inspector Eric Wright of Liverpool City Police was at the scene, and confirming there'd been a violent death, 
requested assistance and remained on scene until CID arrived a short time later. After Leslie was certified dead at the scene by police doctor Charles St Hill, her body was removed to Broad Green Mortuary for post-mortem, whilst an intensive murder inquiry began. Post-mortem was to later find that Leslie had been brutally battered to death with a combination of both the fireplace poker and the heavy ashtray stand, which had caused massive fractures to the skull and no less than 15 sizeable lacerations, varying from half an inch to two and a half inches in length. She'd first also been stabbed twice, and although these were serious wounds, neither would have been enough to have caused her death. But they had been enough to incapacitate her, whilst the killer had then tied her hands and placed a ligature around her neck before clubbing her to death. From the start, for the second time in less than a year in the area, investigators considered that they would be faced with a difficult inquiry. Aside from the displacement in the sitting room where the murder had occurred, there were no signs of ransacking of the house, nothing was found to have been stolen, and the three younger Hobbs children hadn't been harmed, they hadn't even woken up. Post-mortem found no signs of Leslie having been sexually assaulted before a murder either, so this was also ruled out as a motive for the murder, and indeed, when investigators looked at her life, they found nothing except a 12-year-old girl who was described as being from a happy and close family, popular and vivacious, loving music and animals, and who was well-liked by teachers and school friends alike at King David's Grammar School nearby where she attended. Leslie had no boyfriend to fall out with, she wasn't involved in any criminal or illicit activity and her murder seemed to be totally motiveless. Putting together the most likely scenario, investigators believed that Leslie's killer had simply knocked on the front door late that Sunday evening and had either conned or simply forced his way in. No sounds of a scream were heard by neighbours and the younger Hobbs children had slept through the attack so it was surmised that Leslie had either admitted in someone that she knew because there was no way she would have allowed a stranger in willingly, or was attacked swiftly when she answered the door, most likely being stabbed twice on the doorstep. Fleeing to the back sitting room, she was pursued in by a killer, who overpowered the injured girl, restrained her and choked her, and then ultimately battered her to death with instruments that were to hand. The killer then opened and fled through the back kitchen door, over the fence into the garden of next door to the Hobbs house, and through a gap in the four-foot fence that led to the railway embankment that was at the rear of the house. This was the trail that was picked up by a police dog brought in to search the area, as Ronald Hobbs had found the back door closed but unlocked when he'd checked it. As the resulting investigation got underway, the Hobbs family were moved out of their house to stay with relatives as forensic experts moved in, and by the early morning of Monday the 10th of December 1962, a squad of 500 police officers, bolstered by officers drafted in from Manchester and Birmingham, had begun the massive inquiry in the area of the murder, an inquiry which the Liverpool Echo newspaper had immediately offered a £1,000 reward for, absolutely horrified at the brutal murder of a young girl in her own home. A mobile incident room was set up in the vicinity of Childwall Valley Road and as gardens, gutters and pretty much every single speck of the area surrounding the murder scene was thoroughly searched, extensive house-to-house inquiries in the area got underway. Pubs, shops and business premises in the area were all visited and the customers and staff of these spoken to, as well as buses and trains passing through the area that were stopped, searched and examined for any bloodstained or discarded clothing or a weapon possibly belonging to the killer. It was the house-to-house inquiries that rapidly produced results though. There were reports of prowlers trying door handles in the area in the weeks before the murder, Two young men were spotted by several witnesses hanging about in the near vicinity of the Hobbs house the previous evening, but most crucially, a witness came forward who saw a young dark-haired male running very fast away from the vicinity of the murder scene towards nearby Childwall Valley High School at about 10.30pm on the evening of the murder. All efforts of police, already who were working flat out, were doubled to try and identify these people. With Detective Chief Superintendent James Morris, the officer leading the hunt, convinced that one of these people, most likely the running man, was the killer. 
they were looking for a local man. And if he was a local man, then they'd come face to face with him in the course of inquiries. By the evening of Thursday, December the 13th, house-to-house inquiries had almost completed in the Craigurst Road area, less than half a mile from the murder scene, and the male occupant of number 26 Craigurst Road, a 15-year-old clerk named Peter William Ricks, was spoken to for the second time that week. The area had been blanketed in the two days following the murder and Ricks had actually been spoken to on Monday the 10th of December but he'd accounted for his movements the previous evening. Admittedly these were only that he was alone walking in the district between 8.30 and 11pm that evening but this had seemed innocuous enough. When the initial house-to-house inquiries in the area had been completed and a prime suspect hadn't jumped immediately out though Orders were given to go through each address and statement once again, and so by Thursday, Ricks was visited at home for the second time that week. During his second statement, given at home in the presence of his mother, he gave very much the same story as he had three days before, but this time, one of the interviewing officers noticed what looked like splashes of blood on the boy's overcoat. Ignoring nothing, however trivial, the coat was seized by police and sent for examination, and a week following the murder, the results were back and it turned out that the spots were indeed bloodstaining. They turned out to be of a different blood group to Peter Ricks, who was of blood group O. The blood on Ricks's coat was of group B, the same group as Leslie Hobbs. Brought in to Allerton Police Station for questioning, Ricks was asked about these stains and he claimed at first that they must have been paint from art classes that he'd taken previously, claiming that his coat hadn't been cleaned in a year. When told that they'd been proven to be blood stains, though and asked where he'd gotten them, he at first said that they must have been from when he cut himself with a bread knife some months before. This story then changed to when Ricks had stumbled and cut his hand whilst climbing down the railway embankment behind 191 Childwall Valley Road, somewhere that he at first ever denied having been, but later admitted that he'd been on this railway embankment on occasion. He also claimed when he was asked if he had a knife that he only had a pen knife, having had his sheath knife taken away from him by his father the previous year. The previous year? Was it taken away? or had he disposed of it after dropping the sheath somewhere. Mm. Ricks also claimed not to know the Hobbs family at all, but he eventually came around to admitting that he did know of the family, and he admitted that he did know which house on the road was theirs from its unusual standout brickwork. Told that police officers were searching his house and that his mother had been summoned to attend the police station, Ricks burst into tears and asked to see her. When his mother arrived, she sat on a chair next to her son and asked him what he'd done. Rix's response was, I killed her. Rix was then cautioned, which was written down and signed by both he and his mother, and then when asked if he wished to make a statement that would be transcribed, he indicated that he did, but not in the presence of his mother. After having a meal break due to the amount of time that he'd been in custody, Rix made a full statement. He admitted being near the house and seeing Maureen and Ron Hobbs reverse out of the driveway and set off down the road at 9.35pm that Sunday evening and his statement continued I don't know what made me do it but I went up and rang the front doorbell. She opened the door and I pushed in. I stabbed her and she screamed. I told her to be quiet and put her hands behind her back. I tied her hands with a tie that I picked up from the couch. I then picked up the poker and hit her on the head a lot of times. She ran up against the door, so I picked up a stand from near the grate and hit her with it. She fell on the floor, and I hit her a lot of times with the stand. When I tied her hands, I put gags round her mouth to stop her shouting, because I was going to batter her, but I don't know why. I don't know what came over me. I wanted to do it for a long time. After I hit her with the stand, I went out the back door. I went down the garden and knocked two boards off the fence and went through the hole. I went up on the railway and over the playing fields on the other side to Chelwood Avenue. I ran home and hid the knife behind the wardrobe because I didn't want anybody to know. I noticed a big blood stain on the left side of my overcoat and tried to take it off with some turps. 
Now Riggs could correctly describe how the back door of the Hobbs house had been locked when he left through it, having to take off two bolts and to turn the key to leave, and he could correctly describe the interior of the room in which the murder had been committed, right down to the colour of the Hobbs' red telephone. He also had blood of the same group as Leslie's on his coat, was admittedly out and about round the area of the murder at the time it had occurred, and had admitted where he'd hidden a knife, which was later retrieved during a search of his home and was identified by him. Plus, his full signed confession kind of sealed the deal really, didn't it? The following day, Tuesday the 18th of December 1962, Peter William Ricks appeared at Liverpool Juvenile Court charged with killing Leslie Hobbs, where in a hearing lasting just seven minutes, he was remanded in custody for a week. Custody was extended at this following hearing, and after four days of evidence was heard in camera, on Friday the 18th of January 1963, examining magistrates decided that there was a case for him to answer, and Ricks was remanded further to Walton Prison in Liverpool, committed to await trial. Yet when his trial for the murder of Leslie Hobbs began on Monday the 11th of February 1963 at Liverpool Aziz's, Ricks entered a plea of not guilty to a murder. However, prosecuting counsel Richard Bingham QC told the jury that he'd received intimation from Ricks' defence counsel, Rosemary Halebron QC, that the defence would not seek to challenge that Ricks did in fact kill Leslie, but rather they would place before the jury certain evidence to suggest that Ricks was suffering from diminished responsibility at the time of the murder. Mr Bingham then went on to outline to the jury the events of the evening of 9th of December the previous year, then gave way to testimony from various active participants in the resulting investigation ranging from the police doctor who'd certified Leslie dead at the scene to the officer in charge of the investigation, Detective Chief Superintendent James Morris. The jury saw more than 75 exhibits ranging from the 4-inch bladed knife that was recovered from behind Ricks's wardrobe right through to items of bloodstained furniture taken from the Hobbs sitting room and a noticeable shudder went through the jury when they were shown and examined the bloodstained and bent poker and ashtray stand that had been used to bludgeon Leslie to death. They then heard the circumstances leading to Ricks's arrest, they heard about his confession, his committal proceedings, and the results of several medical professionals who'd examined Ricks whilst he was on remand awaiting trial. Ricks, the son of a housewife and merchant seaman father, had from the age of just three been on and off referred to child specialists for expressed temper and jealousy issues towards his sister. Perhaps the long periods that his father was absent didn't help either, as his mother just couldn't control him. He'd steal regularly from home, smash things up, generally be a scumbag, that kind of thing. And these referrals had continued periodically throughout his life. Unsurprisingly, this behaviour had also affected his education, causing him to move schools numerous times after expulsion for his unruly behaviour. Although he was described as being of above-average intelligence, he was a loner with few friends, and by about age 12, the never-academically outstanding Ricks now lost pretty much all interest in schoolwork altogether, and what he did do gave cause for concern. During research for the episode, I found recollections from a former pupil who attended Holt High School with Ricks, who said, He also came over as intelligent and well-mannered when he was at the Holt High School, and I never saw him get into fights or display any violent tendencies myself. However, his behaviour was odd, and I do recall an art teacher looking at a painting that Ricks was making and saying, Ricks, you are quite mad. One day you will kill someone. I was shocked and thought, what a terrible thing to say. But perhaps the art teacher could see something sinister in that picture, and his comment was prophetic. Perhaps he could indeed, eh? By 1962, Ricks had left school, and in October of that year found employment as an office clerk, a role that he was only to hold for a number of mere weeks before he was arrested for the brutal murder of Leslie Hobbs. Several medical professionals who'd examined Ricks whilst he was awaiting trial gave the collective opinion in court that Ricks was suffering from a psychopathic disorder. 
One of these, Dr. Benedict Finkelman, what a great name, eh? Testified that Ricks had little to no emotion whatsoever about the present circumstances that he found himself in, and he told the court of the results of his various examinations of Ricks over his remand period. Ricks, he claimed, had never had what would be classed as normal, healthy sexual feelings. Indeed, for the previous two years, he'd admitted to Dr. Finkelman that whenever he saw sex in a film or a book of some sort, his mind went straight to a desire to kill or maim young girls or women. This stemmed, he claimed, from a dream that he'd had where he was bludgeoning a woman to death, and Ricks had found this such an enjoyable dream that he'd begun to develop waking fantasies of doing things like this, that he had, in Dr. Finkelman's opinion, substituted for normal sexuality. Ricks could give no reason why he enjoyed thoughts like this, fantasising about killing or maiming women, except to say, they just get on my nerves, I don't like them at all. Taking all of this into account, it took the jury just 10 minutes to deliver a verdict of guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, and presiding Mr Justice Ells ordered Ricks to be detained for life for what he described as this awful crime, in such a place and on such conditions that the Home Secretary should direct, most likely a secure hospital. Ricks was then taken away to begin his sentence. Although he was never to confess to the murder of Maureen Dutton a year previously, and there's of course no direct evidence pointing to Ricks as being Maureen's killer, plus I can't say, there he is, records concerning the case that are held at the National Archives, but in the usual helpful way, are sealed until stupid years like 2058, these records do name Ricks as being strongly suspected as the party responsible. The local press were quick to draw comparisons to the Nottyash murder at the time also. And if Ricks isn't the prime suspect, then please tell me who is. Ricks was clearly a disturbed and highly dangerous individual, a self-confessed killer, and is it such a massive jump then to suggest that he could be responsible for Maureen's murder as well as Leslie's? You have two horrific murders of females in similar circumstances, both in their own homes, regardless of children being present in each, both involving an overkill of violence and the use of a knife, both committed under cover of some sort, fog or darkness, with similar descriptions of dark-haired young males seen fleeing from the scene or around the area, just a year and just two miles apart. Is that a massive coincidence? Or was a double killer taken off the streets thanks to a sharp-eyed detective? There is little to nothing available to research concerning the case by what's been recounted here. It's not known how long Ricks was detained for following his crime, although hearsay accounts that I did find through research claim that he was released some years later and was subsequently spotted hanging about the murder scene, although the Hobbs family had long since moved from the area. But you can't substantiate accounts like this. These could be just simple boogeyman stories, hearsay, rumour, I'm sure you get the usual kind of thing when a horrific crime happens in some area. It's also not known whether Ricks is even still alive today. If he is, then he'd be well advanced in years by now, and if he is, then it's feasible to suggest that he may have indeed long been released from detention. His crime was almost 60 years ago now after all, and just think, he could be living next door to you. It's a scary grim thought, isn't it? Frustratingly though, we just don't know. There's so little about the case available for research, I couldn't even source a picture of Ricks for the show's Instagram page. So what do you think then, enthusiasts, about the cases that you've heard this episode? The unsolved murder of Maureen Dutton and the murder of Leslie Hobbs. Aren't they both horrendous crimes? I mean, what sight for Ronald and Maureen Hobbs to find and Brian and poor David Dutton? Imagine that. Proper stuff and nightmares that is in the evening. You can't even begin to imagine that, can you? What are your thoughts then about Maureen's killer? Could it be Peter Ricks? And for what reasons? 
I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts concerning the episode. There will be a fresh thread up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group where you can hear these views. You can challenge me if you think that I've been wrong in any of these observations or offer any new theories that you may have that I haven't outlined here. It's always good to discuss these things and I'm always extremely interested in hearing what people think. I look forward to reading some of your thoughts. Or you can get in touch through the show's other social media should you wish to talk about the same thing. I'm always happy to hear from you wherever. Before I do go, this week's episode also brings with it a first. It's dedicated to someone. One of the most respected and accomplished authors and broadcasters in the true crime genre was a man named Martin Fido. Now I've got several of his books in my library and for anybody who's a serious researcher of true crime then his is a name that I'm sure you would have come across at some point. If you haven't then I can highly recommend his works for any student, they're fascinating and very very in-depth. As well as being a writer and academic, for many years he also presented a London radio show called Murder After Midnight, several episodes of which can be found on YouTube or in the link that can be found with this week's show notes. They're very interesting and well worthy of a listen. Kind of a godfather for true crime podcasting, in a sense, if you like. Now Martin sadly passed away on April 2nd this year, aged 79, and following his passing, I was contacted and asked by a relative of his if I could do a nod to him in an upcoming episode. I'm more than happy to, and I decided that it felt very fitting to do this best by dedicating the episode this week to him. So when a killer comes calling, is dedicated in memoriam of Martin Fido. And that's a wrap once again for another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Thank you so much for joining me all. I hope that you found the Naughty Ash murder case both informative and intriguing. And I hope that you can all join me for the next one, which as I explained at the onset of the episode, will be out in a day or two. Until we speak next then, I've been and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very very soon. Take care all and goodbye for now.